Benji Moody, the host of From the Hip, a podcast that explores the world of music and all its glory and stories. Now, for the past nearly 50 years, I've followed my muse from playing in teenage garage bands to working in record stores, a music company executive, club and radio DJ, keen observer of popular culture. I've watched the rise and fall of musical movements over the decades, from beat, pop, psychedelia, underground metal and punk, to soul, jazz, disco, fusion, reggae, hip-hop and beyond. In short, music is the fabric of my life. But my most favorite part of my career was spent at Weir Records and Tusk Music through the 70s, through the 90s. And during this time, I met and worked and partied with some amazing musicians and DJs. You were into international and South African alternative rock in the 80s and 90s. And the first of my two guests on this episode is none other than the legendary Barney Simon. For nearly three decades, his late night radio show, The Powerhouse, was essential listening for any self-respecting rock fan. Not only because he introduced audiences to the likes of Sisters of Mercy, Bauhaus, Susie and the Banshees and The Mission, among others, but he also championed some of South Africa's most successful rock outfits, including that of his fellow guest, Rob McLennan, singer, guitarist, songwriter and guiding light of arguably our greatest alternative rock band, No Friends of Harry. So long overdue get-together... With you two, it's a warm welcome to Barney Simon, Rob McLennan. Guys. Long overdue, long overdue. Uh, why are we drinking water? I know. It's, it's very unusual, this, isn't it? Yeah. But it is during a day. Mind you, never stopped us in the past. No, but, but, but 10 o'clock on a Monday is pushing oh, it. I know, it is pushing it. You look quite good on a Monday morning. You know, I, I saw you in the past 10, 15 years ago, and uh, we didn't look that good on a Monday morning. But Yeah, yeah, mm. yeah. Times change. Times change. <laughs> so I've called this episode What Alternative? Because when I was planning it, I thought it's one of the most misunderstood and overused uh, descriptions of a music genre. So this leaves us with a bit of an elephant in the room. Just what does alternative mean to you, Rob? Um, I, th- I think it was seriously sort of misabused in, um, in the 80s and the 90s to a large degree. But I, I think that's the word that sort of um, gathered a group of non-traditional musicians, artists, who would be seen to be sort of doing opposite of mainstream. So I think that's where the word sort of came about. But I mean, even in the 60s, you had alternative bands um, that sort of formed punk. Punk mm. was part of that. Post-punk was part of that. Goth, all of that sort of thing was all lumped under this big title of of alternative music, and uh, it's, I guess it's the same in any culture, whether you're a writer or not, or whatever, you get alternative writers, mm. like Kerouac and all of that sort of stuff. So it was a loose grouping of that, um, and then obviously like most things, you know, the words new wave and punk and alternative and all of that sort of just wrapped up this broad spectrum. But it was, at the time, a movement also largely driven by Barney, mm that played music that wouldn't traditionally be played in South Africa. So that's what it meant, yeah. And um, it started with Neil Johnson and then Barney and, 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 and very few actual people on air had that opportunity to do it. So Barney became a champion of that sort of music. We were all sort of largely influenced in the, in the 80s, I guess. I mean, obviously by the punk movement, but largely British, actually. Less so from the... Um, 
from the American side, and that, that included all the bands that you spoke about a little bit earlier, um, Bauhaus, Mission, Stranglers, all, all of those sort of things. Um, yeah, they would, they would have been classified as alternative. Bonnie, for you, I mean, you did champion alternative music. What got you into alternative music? Um, I used to be a sound engineer uh, on Radio Fave uh, in those days, and there was like three minutes to go before the news. I was an engineer. And I produced all the shows, and we call it pad music. So uh, I got all the imports that uh, Radio 5 in those days got from the record companies. They sent it straight to us, so they didn't even listen to that stuff, so I kept that. And I played UK subs, Sex Pistols, just before the news, like at 10 at night, <laughs> midnight, and they didn't know. They were all sleeping. It was automated anyway. So there's like always just play something instrumental or whatever, and that's and I, the phones went crazy. People went we're from the UK and we work, my parents work at Sassol. That's what happened. There was all the British kids came over to South Africa, Funabel Park, and they heard this on the radio and I had that reaction. And um, I sat with that collection and I played it at the nightclubs and I thought, why not play it on radio? And yeah, I got into trouble every time. Mm -hmm. But uh, I think that's where it actually started. And remember, we didn't have uh, TV shows. We had the NME and I read about these bands in the the newspaper Mm -hmm. that we got once a month or so. So, uh, yeah, and there were street records. That's where I got all my music from. So that was uh, why I actually played it on air, because I, I, I broke all the rules. <laughs> <laughs> and, street, and street records, had the, the, they were great because they had the bottom section where you could buy, buy all of the music you couldn't get anywhere else. And then upstairs, you could take, on the weekend, you could take eight records and, and take them back on the Monday and um, and you could see if you liked them without having to pay for them. You rented those records, and it allows us, us to listen to stuff that you that you would never have paid like a lot of money, ten rand or something, um, <laughs> in yeah. those days. But you could you could listen to a lot of that music and take it back. Well, it's the only way people in South Africa could hear that kind of music through mm. radio. There yeah. was no other, uh, and, and people loved it. And uh, the uh, guys were there, Mohicans. The punks from Hillbrow, they were, they were just loving it. And then the Sisters of Mercy. And then obviously we, we moved into the club scene. I mean, the powerhouse that we opened and you guys started playing. But I've got a great story about where we found out about a band called No Friends of Harry. I still don't know who Harry is, but... Well, I'm going to ask Rob that. <laughs> oh, my God. It's been a secret for 50 I mean, years. You're right. I mean, you both, you know, played critical roles in the development of this music and... and and in many ways, I suppose your careers sort of paralleled each other um, in, in this. How did, you, how did you meet? Well, it's a, it's a formative story, but you can tell your side of it. Um, I didn't know. I've never heard of No Friends of Harry. I've never got demos or anything. But my uh, future mother-in-law and my future wife, they were there at the market, uh, flea market, uh, on a Saturday morning. And uh, just before they left, these guys were on a flatbed truck. And Wendy's mom said, these guys are absolutely amazing. They're wearing black. Look at them. I love their music. So I went on air on that Sunday. She told me about it. And I said on air, there's this band called, I'm not sure what you guys are called because they couldn't remember, but you played on a flatbed truck at the market theater down the road there. Send me your demo. And I don't know where you guys heard it. Maybe somebody told you and you actually brought a cassette in, which I played a week later. Yeah. So, I mean, it's, it's when we sort of were formed, we were proper like garage band so we started looking for gigs we did a um a couple of gigs 
at Jamison's on a Tuesday night. That's the only thing we could get. It was at a time when like Softies and and um, all of those sort of bands were around, and they were sort of seen as an alternative in that sense. But, but there were no clubs that would entertain us at that particular time. And um, we got this idea, and it was actually our manager's Mark's, Mark's idea, that like if we can't find a place to play our stuff, let's go and play at the market. And um, initially, the first time we played there, um, opposite the market theatre, was, there was a massive flea market there happening on a, on a Saturday and a Sunday. We found a way to plug into the a traffic light, the robots. We unscrewed that, got our power from there, and started playing there. No one passed the first three. We gathered a crowd, but no one passed the first three people could see us. So we borrowed a friend of ours who allowed us to practice in his garage. His dad had a flatbed truck. We did the same thing. And what Bonnie hasn't said is that um, a lot of us obviously used to listen to his show, but there was massive traffic in um, taping his show and sitting with your cassette recorder. And as the adverts came on or tried to cut out his thing, we would we would push pause and then release it when you played your new songs <laughs> and stuff like this. So Bonnie was obviously really driving this whole scene right then. And then that's exactly what happened is that um, we played there and it was really good and, and um, we, we sort of did it what, twice there, I think two or three times. And then we were chased away by the cops and stuff like that because we weren't allowed to unscrew a robot and plug our gear and that sort of stuff in. And it did come out over the radio. And because of that, we sold... Um, the guys from Top 40 got it. Then you heard it. We sent you the cassette, which we sold. We, we used to um, sell, and then on the, they used to send their request to a PO box with money in an envelope. We'd send them the cassettes, and it went ballistic. We were, we were just, like, selling loads. And then from then on, we went to do our, our first record. But it was, it was definitely an atmosphere that was gathering at that particular time of no one's going to do it for us, we'll do it for ourselves. So obviously we did all of the artworks, we screen printed all our own TV, um, a T-shirt t- for every mm. gig, every mm. post had a different visual on it. Um, the first record, we, we, we got free downtime because of my early career in, um, in advertising in the night. We ended up recording our first um, and really, it, it blew up from there. But we, we, we recorded it over, over three nights. Two nights for recording, one night for, for, mix. for mixing. And that is that our first album, One Came Running. Um, and it was all done for free. And it had to be done in that downtime. And it was done by a guy called Chris Van Scone, who actually was an engineer on Clout's Substitute and stuff like mm-hmm. that. So it all just blew up from that cassette from, from, cassette. from Barney. Well, the power of radio, right? Barney, yeah. Barney sort of championed us from there. The first track he played from cassette, it was, it was a long way home, I think. They're watching you, babe. How does that make seem? Standing in the spotlight and they want to see you scream. If you want more, then you know they'll give you less. And if you say no, then
now They can see you shake They're watching you, babe And they want to see you break If you say black Then you know they'll say white You get to the left And you stay on the right But it's a long way And it's a I, I never wanted to be on air. I, I, I was always with the mic over there, and I loved doing sound and stuff. And uh, David Gresham, on a Saturday morning, he did the breakfast show, and he did he recorded uh, between six and seven, so I had to play the tape in and the commercials in between, and then he came in at seven to do it live until nine. And he just kept on talking to me on air, and you know, sound engineers, you'll hear them in the background. Yes, David. And he said, but. No, put the mic on. I said, no, I'm Afrikaans. I, I can't speak English that well. And he actually said, you will talk to me on the show. He put the mics off. He said, uh, I want to talk to you live on air. And, and that, you know, there I got a little bit of, uh, I was a bit uh, scared. And, you know, this is not my scene. And then I started enjoying it. So that's where it actually started. Then I did the shadow show with Keith Lindsay. Yeah. The Terrible Twins. <laughs> and we went crazy. And there was, you know, a, a, a five of them in those days, Malcolm Russell, all the guys that ran the station, we had free reign. Uh, Chris Pryor was a big influence. He put a little letter together, which I've got somewhere, that he sent to the program manager and said, give this guy a break now, you know. Uh, he, he knows his music, just put him on air. So I struggled for about six years before, and I sent demos in and more demos, and I thought, but if I want to play my own music. If you, if you give me a show, then I want to play my own music. I don't want to play your playlist. Mm. So they gave me that opportunity. You know, Malcolm Russell said, it's your show. Do whatever you want to do. Well, Five was quite visionary back then. I mean, like you said, there were different people. There was, there was Chris, there was Rafe, there was you, there was Alex. Mm. I mean, and you all had your own particular feel and sound. It was a, it, it's a long way away from where it is now. Yeah. <laughs> but Rob, I mean, no friends of Harry are regarded as the most influential of the, of, of the bands. And, and how, how did you actually get together? Was it, were, were you friends? Was it, was it kind of a, a, a process of, uh, uh, jamming with people, or how did it all come together? Yeah, I mean, it it sort of is a sort of familiar story. Of um, I was at college. I was I've been playing guitar since I was at school. Um, played with various friends and um, started sort of generally writing my own stuff. At the at the end of school, ended up um, in doing fine arts and graphic design, uh, met a bunch of people who were in the art fraternity and stuff like that, and we started to play together, various various garage bands and formed that. Um, around about, I don't know, I think 85, um, the, the, the conscription happened for people who were um, British citizens or had been in the country for longer than five years. And half the music fraternity actually returned or else they, they, they went to the army. At the time I was, I was jamming with Ian Wiggins and um, he got, I got to know him. He was a guitarist in a couple of bands. And uh, Mark Williams, who's, um, who became our manager, but actually was a friend who wasn't afraid to go in and barge his way and get us gigs wherever we couldn't do that. He was at art college with me. And um, so we, we formed this little band and I was going out at the time with 
Annette, who became the drummer of No Friends of Harry. And we formed this band with Ian and myself. And then um, Annette used to, when she was playing drums, she actually played in this band, um, which used to play at in over Christmas at the... Um, you know, at, at all of the, the sort of shopping centres, Eastgate mm. and that sort of thing, and then they used to play Christmas carols, and she did it because she was learning to drum and playing and all that. The one time I went to watch them, and there was this long, tall guy dressed in black with an explosion of hair, mm. not dissimilar to Robert Smith, and it was Dave, and he was playing bass, and we were looking for a bass player. And um, what I was most impressed about after I spoke to him after the gig is that... Um, on a Saturday afternoon in a shopping centre, is that he owned the PA as well. So, like, that was a massive bonus. bonus and yeah. that, was, that was the final lineup. And literally in 1986, um, we got together and everything just sort of gelled. We were playing in our friend's garage, as you do, where, where he lent us the, the flatbed. And it sort of really grew from there because everything just gelled and. Um, and by 86, we'd, we'd, at the end of 86, we'd already given you, that's when we gave you that demo. So tape. how did you come across that name? I mean, everybody asked um, For God's sake. Okay, yes. <laughs> so so we, we didn't want to tell it. I mean, everyone, everyone thought it was either Harry for heroin. I had my first big car accident on Harry Street. Um, actually, where it came from is we needed a name and we, we were getting drunk the one night. Uh, well, we were having a couple of drinks one night. And we were deciding on a name, and as usual, all the band members were like doing it, and we were saying, no, that's shit, and um, whatever. And we started consulting a book, which was a nine, no, not, nine, not the nine o'clock news almanac, which was like almost like a calendar, but it had funny sayings on each right. page. And I started flipping through that. And um, we could have been called... Badger Conservatory or something like that. <laughs> but anyway, the next morning we'd forgotten what we'd been, but we had this page with a list of stuff like that. And I looked at it, and one of them was No Friends Harry, and I said, that's, that's the, the name. name. Yeah. And the first campaign was photos stating black and white pictures of it and said, who's the fuck is Harry? And that's how we <laughs> built up people playing at King of Clubs down below. And um, it was, we, we wanted to do this teaser campaign. Who's this band, this unknown band? And it sort of was just such a great name. I love the fact that it was different. Where everyone was calling the, this, the cure, the stranglers. We had no friends of Harry. Very DIY. Yeah, 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 exactly. Now, talking about names, I'm glad we, we clarified that one because I think a lot of people don't know that story. No, they don't. In fact, we kept it a complete secret until pretty much now. I mean. Well, you just announced it to the world now. Yeah. Talking about names. You've all, always been called Skin. mm how, how, how did, I mean, I, I, when I met you, you were like maybe 19 or something. You used to come to the Weir offices. It was, I never had a skinhead, but that was, uh, Rafe Levine started that. Hey, skin, skinny. I was a bit skinny then. Okay. And I used to be his engineer and he just started calling me the skin. And then all the underground clubs, the skinheads and the punks, I was actually a punk. So I had my school blazer on with all the punk badges. And I had safety pins sticking out. So when the punks grabbed you, those safety pins went in, uh, pins went into their hands. So it's like, but uh, I deviate all those nightclubs. So I was more of the, in the punk scene. But uh, all the skinheads were my friends. They were from the UK. So because of that movement and uh, the scar movement and stuff, so I never, I wasn't actually a skinhead. So it's the biggest joke still today. 
uh, when Rafe doesn't call me Barney, he goes, hey, Skin, when he had his shop down the road. So, yeah, it, uh, you know, it, a lot of people still, and the Skins didn't like it either. I got a lot of uh, playing in a nightclub, and the, the punks and the Skins said, you, you're fake. You're on the radio, you call yourself the Skin. And I said, no, it's a joke. It started with Rafe. And mm. I was a bit skinny then, and, uh, yeah, so I've, I've never really been a skinhead. You, so you were a punk originally. Yeah. I dressed up like a punk, and right. I listened to that kind of music. But because of uh, we made friends with a lot of people that came through and worked at Sassel, their parents. So you got all these uh, 17, 18-year-old upstarts that uh, they were all hanging out in Hilbra, and they were from the UK. They had leather jackets with a Union Jack on the back, and I, I was obsessed about that movement. To me, that was like I wanted to be like mm. that. So, and I had the opportunity then to obviously play the music on the radio. So wherever I played, these kids just followed me. So it was a nice little movement there. So goth probably is this, the, the bastard stepchild of punk, I mean, at the end of the day. Yeah, I mean, if you think about it, like, um, where, where did it start? But, like, you know, it's, it's goth is sort of an attitude in a weird way, but Sissy Sue, Stranglers, Cure, they all consider goth. She, he's, she's called the, the godmother of goth and all of that sort of stuff. But it's actually, they were, they, it was very close to punk. And, and actually the, from punk, you know, it was a very, very fertile sort of time because there was, there was goth, there was ska, two-tone. Then there was um, the electronic movement was started by that. But it was very empowering because people could create all of that sort of stuff. And it empowered a lot of women, actually. Mm. Whereas before that, it, there weren't a hell of a lot of self-empowered women in, in, in rock and, and music and that sort of stuff. But it was, it just splintered off, but it was still all then called that in the span of alternative.
your description yeah. of, 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 of what people call goth, goth rock. Um, a separate movement from post-punk and stands out due to its darker sound with the use of primarily minor or bass chords, reverb, dark arrangements, or dramatic and melancholic melodies. <laughs> Having inspirations in Gothic literature allied with themes such as sadness, nihilism, dark romanticism, tragedy, melancholy, and morbidity. These themes are often approached poetically. The sensibilities of the genre re- led the lyrics to represent the evil of the century and the romantic idealization of death. Does that sound like No Friends of Harry? I think it's spot on. <laughs> <laughs> I actually think it's a fairly, it's a fairly accurate description. I mean, um, yeah, I mean, a lot of people have derided the term goth as mm. these sort of um, white-skinned people in black outfits, which is also pretty accurate. But um, I think the, all of those influences are pretty true. And, I mean, you could draw goth roots back to bands like Velvet Underground. Yeah, and The Doors, yeah. And all of that sort of stuff. So it, it, it sort of comes from, from that particular time where, where music is always divided in sort of happy and, and people that draw on the darker side of music. And, uh, like, even when I was a kid, it was always I was unknowingly attracted to that sort of dramatic, dark side of it. A song like Eloise, which is a 60s Oh, yeah, thing. Paul Ryan. I mean, yeah. that's, a, that's, Barry Ryan. that's a goth song, man. Yeah. <laughs> and anything Scott Walker did. Yes, I mean, exact, also exactly, very, exactly right. Exactly, yeah, very goth. Yeah. Barney, I mean, you, you know, you, you've been called sort of, or compared to John Peel in, in, in relation to the effect that you had on radio over here. When you were... In the show, and who who were your influences as DJs? I mean, who who kind of came along where you went? Oh, that that's spot on. Well, uh, John Peel was one of them. Uh, a friend of mine used to record his show, uh, Radio One. He did the late night show, mm. and he sent me the cassettes over. And I heard this guy, and he was very cocky on air, and he played from dance music to garage music. There was no like this is only alternative. He had an open mind with that kind of thing. Uh, him and then, uh, I mean, Chris Pryor, uh, as a kid, I used to listen to him at night and just the way that he presented that show, his music knowledge, he used to, and we didn't have the internet in those days. So you couldn't Google and read, uh, give a list of all the artists' names and what they play. Pryor sat there like this, put the sleeve out on air and I did it as well. That's what that, this is my research. It was, yeah. And I'm going, Oh, the bass player is what's his name again. So, uh, that helped a lot. So, um, yeah, and then his music at night was also uh, from Santana to Led Zeppelin, Pink Floyd. It wasn't just uh, alternative that I played. Mm. Um, yeah, so he and Rafe Levine did a metal show on a Friday night, and he was the first to play uh, Metallica. And I still played two vinyls. Um, I think it was a Led Zeppelin into a Metallica album, and that mix was perfect. I'm getting goosebumps. Uh, and Rafe just stood up there. We looked at each other. At the one just – we didn't play jingles between – Every song, so, and and I did that mix, and I hit that button, and it was like one song. It was it was beautiful. I'll never forget that day. So Rafe played all the the, the rock uh, or metal and stuff like that later. So those are the two guys, and then um, you know the terrible twins. Just we had fun on that show. We had a bottle of whiskey, which was it's a four hour show. By the time we left, it was finished, and two packets of chips. And uh, people, and Rafe used to smoke on air as well. So mm. his cigarettes were all over, burnt into the turntables. And, you know, and, and we dimmed the lights, and it was like theater of the mind, you know. Uh, radio's changed now. It's, sure, yeah, it's completely it different. It's so exciting now. to play something new. Yeah. I get the new No Friends of Harry album. It's like, I can't wait, and I drop that, and, and there I go. You know, that excitement about playing new music was always, and there's a new band coming out, and this, and not just the big hits 
it was like the damned i'll get a, a damned album i'll play the b-side the last track so that to me was always there's always better music than the big hit mm. uh, that people never heard yeah well with, with the harry's i mean you talk about it it was diy you did everything yourself you had mark williams who was a br- i must admit was a brilliant manager yeah you yeah. booked your own gigs you wrote all the songs you published it you owned the masters so it's all very DIY. I mean, is that the way, in your opinion, independent musicians should be going these days? Because it's a different, it's a different ball game out there now. It's. I think it's. It's just, you know, um, worlds apart right now. Because I think the only way we could survive, and there were other bands in the same thing, but um, there was always a, always a, a do-it-yourself ethos around punk. And I think what happened was is there was a serious culture forming. We were in the, we were in the last couple of years of apartheid and that. So I think the, the youth were disenfranchised in a way that maybe punks were in England, you know, 10 years earlier or whatever. But um, we, we sort of had clubs, which were also DIY. So you had these pamphlets for the Junction and King of Clubs, all of the various places which were forming. People used to catch trains in from Germiston and all the outlying areas and come in on the on, on the weekends. And we formed this culture and everyone became friendly with each other. It just skulk around the city because you'd often get pulled over by cops or, or by people from more disco bands like Q's and stuff like that. And, and, and they were mostly young kids. And we formed these the, the, this opportunity. So... That same ethos, we did, we, we did all of our album covers. We had flags that people stitched on there. We got gifts from our fans, which were carved out logos and things like that. It was completely DIY, to the extent that all of our music was sort of, we recorded it, our second album, we, we recorded completely by ourselves, just hired in the, in the, um, the gear, learned how to, how to engineer and master and produce and all of that sort of stuff. Every every single artwork you see is done by us, and the photographs, all of that sort of stuff, completely down to down to sort of scripting the the, the videos that we did. So that that thing was ingrained in us, and a, and a huge suspicion of actually going with big corporate radio companies, the record, so record companies, companies yeah. initially, and stuff like that. So what was the reaction from the industry, the mainstream industry, no friendly? And how, how did how did you? get involved with principle for for the first uh, yeah. EP. There was this definite movement that um, was was building. One was Barney's show. Um, two was um, these clubs popping up and opening. Firstly, Chelsea Underground. There was the Oxford Hotel, which allowed oh, yeah. that room out there. And we started sort of gigging at the same times as Sucker reptiles in the gathering, and and we we had a similar ethos. We used to have these poster wars. We got three three at night, um, with with our pile of posters and some glue, um, a bit tanked on, on, on box wine, and go out and underneath Saratoga Avenue, stick them up, and then the next day, the reptiles <laughs> would have covered ours. Right. And while we were at at, at Chelsea Underground, they were at the Oxford Hotbox. Then we change, and they were they were always residencies. We all had day jobs, otherwise we wouldn't have survived. Uh-huh. And then we had residencies from a Wednesday to a Saturday where we'd get home at three, be at work at eight. It was one of those sort of things. But but that that I think that DUI uh, do-it-yourself ethos permeated that. And the most successful ones were the guys who realized they'd had to do it themselves or it would never happen. So I think principle 
sort of saw, as, as most record companies should, the burgeoning rise of what you could call alternative music. Mm-hmm. So um, we, someone put us in touch with, with Robbie Mann and that bunch, and then we, um, we took them in and we said, this is what we've done ourselves. Um, are you interested? And they said, yes, we'll, we'll do that. And then afterwards, I think they did the in from the cold one with yeah, the gathering and all yeah. of that. And that was an amalgamation of the of the best alternative bands at the particular time. So they gave us an outlet. I think the biggest change in music, generally speaking, is – I'll try and do this briefly, but the one is the culture of vinyl and – how hard it was to get information about your favorite artists and looking at those albums for hours and doing that, that's gone now, obviously. Um, to record an album was expensive. To mm. distribute it was the hardest thing to do in South Africa. So you had to go through a record company. Mm. That's all changed. So firstly, any music is instantly accessible to someone with a phone now. So the people that are, interestingly, really standing out now are people like um, people that started out by creating their own podcasts or music on YouTube. And Billie Eilish, best example ever. She's unique in her voice, and that's what made her stand out from a million others. Mm. Um, I've never met, uh, met like a harder working person than Taylor Swift. So right. she's constantly just doing that and putting that out. But it's very different from the way we had to do it in those days by creating our own pamphlets and handing them out at robots. And well, that period, 1989, 1990, yeah. Bonnie, um, it seemed to be an exciting time for alternative music, and, and radio was proactive, which you were part of, clubs were mushrooming, which we, which we talked about. There was a, a, a healthy indie press, which, which we don't have anymore. Audiences were growing. Did you sense that this was a genuine movement happening and something that could sustain and perhaps change the status quo. Did you think that this was a genuine, authentic movement? Uh, definitely, because uh, all the uh, sponsors got involved and took bands on tours. I mean, the uh, Line Lager Roadshow. Yeah. Um, I think you guys did your own gigs. Uh, the one that, uh, the best one that still stands out for me, uh, uh, the Library Steps. They arrived in a limo. They did their own thing, which is, but then uh, Line Lager got involved and we did the road shows at all the universities. That's, mm. I think, your biggest following at all the, your Maritzburg, Durban, UCT, we'll talk about that yellow level gig. It's still, I'll never forget that. So, um, the, and I, the nice thing was we can mention, we could mention it on radio. We had no friends of Harry, they're playing in Boxburg tonight or so-and-so. So we, that advertising worked and all the bands used to come in and send me the, uh, drop the flyers off at reception. I said, just send me your flyer and I'll read it. So there was definitely a, a movement and all the bands um, got together for that. Um, the, the, the night I knew there was something happening was at the Portuguese Hall when we had uh, all these bands from Durban coming out. Uh, uh, sort of, what was his name from LSD? The, 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 Roman, uh, uh, Roland Draker. That's it. So he organized this gig at the uh, Portuguese Hall and I think we had 5,000 people. It was chaos, but all the bands were running late. Uh, and uh, we were about two hours late, and t- t- there was an hour left, so you had five bands fighting to get on the stage. And who was the guy there, Mohican, that stage dived into the ground? Which uh, was that band? Toxic Socks. Yes. So there was this punk thing. All the punks came up from Durban, and we didn't have many punk bands in Joburg. And that was also the competition, and it was amazing. You know, like people, every weekend there was something happening. So 
if it was nice to be on the radio and play that music and then go, listen, this Saturday we've got a big gig there. So, and I knew there was something starting to brew, especially in South Africa. And then obviously, uh, as Rob said, the music I played was British. I think the closest I ever got was the Ramones, and they were weak. They weren't like the Sex Pistols. No. So I didn't really get – and then Nirvana was a band that changed everything. You know, so I started playing the first album, Bleach, that nobody knew about. And then, obviously, uh, Adrian Skiro, who is also a big fan of No Friends of Harry, I think he did a, a few compilations. You so And tours and all of that sort of yeah. stuff, as did you. But, I mean, uh, interesting that you mentioned Durban, because Durban really was a hotbed of punk. I mean, Wild Youth yeah. came out of that. Mm, I yeah. think they were called Toxic uh, Toxic Socks. But uh, they, they, yeah. they, there was a bunch of gay marines, all of those sort of guys. Oh, yeah. I think, I mean, like, we had a, we had sort of three main bases in South Africa. In those days, if you came from a gig in Johannesburg to either Durban or Cape Town, you were seen as an overseas band because it was the, the country was so much bigger in those days than it's perceived to be now. Mm. Um, so we had families in both of those, but uh, there, there was like they used to welcome us in Durban and Cape Town with like open arms and Pretoria actually. Mm. Even Pretoria was mm. seen like the Joburg bands playing Pretoria. It sounds crazy, but it, it was like that. And I think it's just obviously made a lot smaller by internet and stuff like that. But all of that stuff, that that whole culture was driven largely by some, someone like Barney. Mm. The enemy was the only other thing, and Melody Maker at the time, where you could get information on that and find record stores like Street to, to do that. But even a lot of those big gigs, like the one at um, in Cape Town, which was your your gig, actually, with the tear gas and all of that. Yeah, that was at uh, Good Hope Center. I'll never forget that night. It was at Good Hope Center. We did our, all of our launches as well. I mean, we, we, we made a massive effort to do it not in the own way. So we, we created the, the first one for um, One Came Running, we were in, um, in like that, uh, what's that, what is that building in, in Hillbrow? Summit Club. On the sixth floor, we took over an old cinema and they had the, the press and all of that sort of stuff at the top. And the cinema stage, we put scaffolding in, which we had to walk up seven flights because it was a derelict building and or very old building and we had to take the scaffolding up so that we could set up the stage in, in levels with big flags out there. So we were doing things that were really different. And as a result, we, like every one of our, our second ones, we, we did a free concert on the library steps between those big concrete lines and all of that. We rocked up in a, a limo. We had this massive stage of sponsors. Sponsors dropped out uh, two days before, so we had to fund it ourselves. But we had this massive desk there and follow spots and the whole number. Guest guys coming in and, and on these massive steps. And it formed a massive post-culture of people who saw that when they were really young and have gone to form their own bands. Like in Cape Town, it was, it was like the nudies. So like Arna will always tell you that story. Jason from the Diesel Halls will tell you a story where he walked all the way from Man. Fans would, would hitch up to get their Cape Town one and then get up to Joburg. And then their moms would phone because they're 15 years old and say, <laughs> got your number from so-and-so and so-and-so. It's, please tell me firstly if she's second, secondly then. We used to let these kids in. It was just, it was like, you don't get that vibe now, but it was the environment of all of these things coming in at that particular time that created this excitement of freshness, newness, of owning, of owning a culture where, where you felt disenfranchised in the rest of, of South Africa. The present has passed in the smoke-filled room. 
in a broken glass. I'll see you soon. The time to fall down as your thoughts rush on in a rush out town like an empty song. To a different time In faraway towns An aging rhyme But a child still stays Like a dying flame And it holds you there An empty song Of a story And friends move on All the words they say Words through your broken seal, your visions blur. Mind leaves behind what the heart wants to stay, but change carries on. There's more change on the way. I mean, there was a pretty purple patch for you that 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 period of yeah. eighty nine ninety. Um, I mean, you you you, and then you pulled off a coup by suddenly off you went to the UK for three months. Sir. Yes, yeah. I mean, how did that come about? Where did you play in the UK? We, we played the Marquee. Oh, love that! And place. we played the Rock Garden, and then we played the White Lion and a whole bunch of of places around there. But it was again, it was like. Um, a bunch of our friends, they were called the Peace Frog Five. They were, five. They were big supporters of um, No Friends of Harry in the early days. They'd gone over to the UK, and they were largely – their parents had been from the UK, and they were over, and they were staying there. And, you know, at, at that time, and I think even if Lloyd went through it, for example, is mm. that the thing is, 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 are we as good as we are on a, on a global stage as we are on a, on a, on a stage here? And I think, um, you know, we hated the, the term, yeah, they're pretty good for a South African band. You know yeah. what I mean? Yeah. Because, and South Africa's always had that, whether it's in movies or whatever. It's like, oh, geez, Not bad quite, for local. Uh, mm. Not bad for local. So we wanted to go and prove that. Um, and then um, we sent Mark ahead, Mark, and um, we said to him, we want, we want to play at the marquee. <laughs> So he, at, at that time, um, South Africans were banned from playing at the Marquee when he was in the UK. So he uh, managed to um, corner the, the, the sound engineer at one particular time. 
and say, listen, we want this this band to play. Here's a cassette if you want to listen to it. The guy said, man, we booked up like way way ahead. And then there was a band called um, Love Hate, like almost a Guns N' Roses type band. We're, uh, but eighty nine Guns N' Roses, and um, he, he he bribed him with a case of of beer, and the guy put us on as a support act to to love hate, and then we obviously did all of our advertising for the South African people that were there at mm. that particular mm. time, and uh, we were scared, fucking shitless. <laughs> okay, <laughs> I remember poor and Ed just standing there, and they were doing a sound check before us. And the guy had came in on drums, and he had he just started doing this roll with his double bass pedal, which was just like a helicopter taking off. And Annette was just looking at this. Mm-hmm. Oh my God! This little homemade band, very poor musicians, and these look at these guys. And it actually just went really, really well. That was our first gig when we went over to the UK. It went really well, and um, we did play the set in about. 10 minutes shorter because adrenaline you just play, play really fast and by the time we got to the rock garden which was our last one we had quite we had sort of gathered quite a nice crowd of of normal punters basically mm. and it was just so great and we were, I was just so impressed by the professionality of how they run the stages and do the sound and do the lighting and all of that and you do a sound check in 15 minutes and we were coming from South Africa where it was all Sort of, you know, um, you get shocked all the time because the the wires were touching the mic stand, and and Mark was stealing one light from each club that we were at, so he could we could form our own lighting rig. We had to bring our own PAs. Was it was a nightmare? So it was a massive learning curve for us. And then we sort of had to make a decision. I think around about ninety one, of whether we're going to go over for good, or um, are we going to are we going to stay here? And um, bearing in mind that we were all working at doing something at that particular stage to keep ourselves from having to end up playing like a holiday in in 15 years' time because you need the money, that allowed us to be uncompromising in our approach. And um, for a lot of different reasons, we decided to ultimately stay. And uh, I think it's a question we always ask each other, is how would we have fared there and done that? But what it has allowed us to do is um, build build this legacy of not compromising on what we're doing musically and that sort of stuff. And and we've done really, all of us have done really nice stuff, you know, post No Friends of Harry as well. Because all of our contacts and, and, and all of the people who know music are in South Africa. So Barnes, at that time, um, I mean, you you obviously were, were critical in, in the development of No Friends of Harry. What other South African bands do you think cut the mustard that could have gone on and and been bigger than they, they really were? Um, well, I, I thought, you know, we're going 90s now, Just Ginger. I really thought there was that American rock sound going on, the Nirvana sound, grunge. I thought they would have had a lot of potential to be big in America. Unfortunately, the record company screwed them there. I don't know what happened. Um, I think No Friends of Harry, that they were perfect, the damned, all those bands, they were gigging all over the UK and I think they would have the, the 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 quality in music. Okay, the vocalist wasn't that good, but <laughs> <laughs> but the quality on stage and that 
they were just absolutely amazing to watch this band because they, they pulled you in and mm. they be, you became part of the band. And I think they would have done very well because that was also the sound of the UK at that stage. And then uh, Psycho Reptiles, I, I think. Um, they were fun. They, 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 you could take them anywhere in the world and they'll get a party going. So mm. and musically as well, they were great musicians. Um, so, I mean, those are the two bands, um, Mango Groove. Um, in those days when they started, played at that. Oh, the early Mango Group yes. were completely different. Yeah, yeah, no, we played with them in those early yeah. days. Oh, did you? Yeah, 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 yeah. So there, uh, what was that club there? Um, they crossed the road from Bimbo's as well, the Afrikaans band. And the downstairs played. was King of Clubs. Yeah. And, and upstairs. upstairs was Lure Club. Yeah. And it, it became another name at the Decadence. And then there, and then there, it would be, that's a mm. Decadence. And, Decadence yeah. was upstairs, yeah. And that's it. So we had all of those. Those were one of the, the, the earliest mm. gigs we had was at Le Club. And we played with Mango Groove there. Yeah. Um, with, as a three piece. But yeah. I still, I mean, you look at the Asylum Kids, uh, they were the mm. guys that changed my life forever because I used to go to all their gigs. And Robbie Rob on stage when he did the splits and there was chaos. No, and, magnificent. You band. know, and you, you still signed them. And then from there, that was a different mood before you guys. Um, mm. And then uh, Tribe After Tribe. Tribe. Then, I mean, you were instrumental, Benji, in getting them uh, that deal in, in America. Mm. Um, and then he went on to form Three Fish, Robbie Rob. So, right. I mean, Benji knows more about that. But those bands and, and and I remember I've still got that uh, schoolboy single and it says rejected by the SABC <laughs> they used to put the stamp on it yeah. so that's yeah. where I actually South African music for me actually started before it was in the 70s I wasn't on air right. then but uh, that was in the movement I think actually and then we had Bright Blue a fantastic uh, I mean Weeping one of the best songs ever written and these guys also wrote about what was going on in the country and I think a lot of bands don't do that anymore mm. there's so much crap going on in this country and they don't they're too scared to, mm. to put it in their lyrics and I think you guys were like there we were just apartheid uh, well, um, I think the amazing thing is that, that in addition to No Friends of Harry and South Africa's really produced some world class bands I mean yeah. you know the Asylum Kids are great. Avoid in their way were, yeah, were absolutely. Uh, would have blown Duran Duran off the, off, off the stage. They were closer to Peter Gabriel than they were to to Duran Duran. I mean, National Wake, yeah. um, you know, which is a documentary has been made. That's what you need to You need a documentary now, Rob, on No Friends Island. You know, you, like uh, we, uh, we've been approached about three or four times. There's one still in um, that's happening. But um, I think, uh, you know, it's, it's a sort of a tragedy. There is... Um, there is very rare footage over that period, and it was, it's due to a lot of the things. There's no everyone can document on their phones and whatever, sure. whatever, whatever. But that era was due to a very tight control on um, mainstream media and, and stuff like that, um, which meant that nothing much was documented apart from the fans who were taking pictures in the clubs or, or filming mm. it there. We were, as no friends of Harry, we were extremely lucky because we did these massive things in a different way like all of the launches the last one was at Windy Brow the other one we actually got at one stage I think for the third one we got we got we had we had coverage from SABC who covered the entire launch that's 15 seconds right 15 seconds and then Mnet did the same we had massive coverage at at um, the first one and um, we had a lot of press there uh, two TV crews and for the and for the for the first second and third and um so we've got about like, on, granted it's on dodgy VHS footage, but of of 
we've got about an hour and a half worth of videos and well, launches and I can, I can and see live a stuff. docky coming then. I mean, it's the other yeah, potentials there for it. I just think that what we really need is is one that explains no for to Harry, but mm. he, but the, the background to how we could have come about in, in at that particular time. What was exciting and what was important to kids growing up at that particular time, becoming part of that community. Of which, of which Barney and the music and all of that became part of that, growing through apartheid into, into Free South Africa because that's when it was happening. And it felt like a really dark time, but it also felt like a time that um, we had the best times of our lives in. Yeah. At the clubs, at the, whether it was the partying, it, it, was, it was the people who almost didn't give a fuck about anything because it felt like it might be Armageddon. But it also felt like, you know what I mean? It had, mm. it had, we had this tension and this pull. It was a really special time for me, still now. Mm. Um, probably between 86 and 91, 92. That, that encapsulated that whole time. Where it almost took over the mainstream. Because it just had this power of itself. Whereas nobody else really cared. Or they were in suburbia and we were just... We were just living this life, you know, but of which you were part yeah, as well. Yeah, I mean, but Alternative Barney did take over the mainstream. You talked about Nirvana. Uh, I mean, yeah. at the turn of the 90s, um, there, was, there, there was an, a new kind of alternative sound, a lot harder edged and, yeah. and, a, and a, dare I say it, aggressive coming out of America, whereas the first wave of alternative stroke goth was coming out of England and, and, and permeating throughout South Africa. I mean, bands like Jane's Addiction, Soundgarden. Yeah, exactly. Exactly. And, and, and Nine Inch Nails, Black Flag, yeah. and, and, and yep. stuff like that. Do you think that was an updated version of the first wave of goth? Kind of a. Because, I mean, th- there's a similarity with what Nine Inch Nails, which is very dark, and, and, and some of the stuff that came, came out of the UK. Um, do you think it was a, 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 a updated version or a new sub-genre of, of, of goth stroke alternative? Well, it was labeled uh, grunge. Grunge. And uh, bands, or they said, where are you from? Um, they're, from C- uh, they, they're from L.A. or whatever, and they just said, no, we are from Seattle. Sure. So even in South Africa, send them kiss demos and CDs going, no, we, we're actually based in Seattle. We're a grunge band. So people jumped on that bandwagon. Um, there were many bands, uh, in my opinion, they were better than Nirvana. They were there before Nirvana became popular. And then Nirvana even said, listen, we didn't ask for, we don't want to be famous. It, you know, it's like that. You become popular and then people diss you. I think it happened to you guys as well when yeah. you started getting a lot of airplay. So that whole grunge, it was and the, the clothes that they were wearing, Pearl Jam, all those bands, it became a massive thing all over the world. And how did this, your, your audience, your, your radio audience react to the new music coming out? Um, I, I, it worked very well. Adrian Skiro gave me this, the orange vinyl of Nirvana Smells Like Teen Spirit, and I couldn't wait that night to put it on the turntable, and I played the orange version, and it was absolutely amazing. And every club gig I did, that was the first song for the next four years that I played. I got there, the people were going crazy, Nirvana, and that got the crowd going. That song, just that intro, the... And also, the, when they saw that video, I think it was on Fast Forward mm. or Pop Shop in those. That video was, like, yeah, was amazing. Yeah. So, you know, and radio couldn't ignore it. Um, they tried to. Um, Nirvana got to number one all over, and we had to do the top 40. And there's Nirvana at number one. Again, no, just play number two and then move on. Yeah. It was too loud for the ra- – and radio stations played it 
But see, the thing about Nirvana is, yeah. I mean, I mean, I mean, it was music for the disenfranchised, in the same way that the Stooges and 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 the earlier wave of music that came out, the Velvets, yeah. the Doors, also young people. Whenever there's a, whenever there's, in my opinion, when things are jaded, um, that's exactly. something comes out. And and I wanted to say, which I'll say it now, right at the end, it's now time for another revolution. Of, of rock it's, music. It's, it's overdue because, I mean, it's something I've thought about a lot because, I mean, I feel like what, what was happening seeped into, naturally into, the, uh, for me, there was a wave that actually started in sort of um, pretty much in, in America in the late 60s, which went into CBGB sort of stuff, which we didn't get to until a bit later. So it was bands like Velvet Underground, MC5. Um, Stooges. Uh, Iggy. Without a doubt, was a big influence with the Stooges, and then it went into Paddy Smith, Talking Heads, Ramones, all at CBGBs. Um, they were all sort of different franchise. Franchise the clubs were, were in, in that sort of vein. Then it went into punk in '76 um, in British and 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 in America. Um, then it went. It was very fertile all the way through to to the 80s. By the time it was getting to 89, when Nirvana was coming out, Soundgarden was, there, there was an American movement that was growing big, mm, mm. which was Soundgarden. Um, and they were informed by people like the Melvins, Pixies, all of the other stuff who were informed by Black Flag and, and who were, uh, who were informed by various meat puppets were all happening in that time. And, and Bonnie was playing that sort of stuff. But then you all of a sudden had, had Sisters of Mercy, who were a goth band, and their last album was much harder, much, much more. And in fact, our mu- mu- music by the third album also. Yeah, I was just going to say 15 Seconds was more, Yeah, I don't want to use the word mainstream, but it was more focused yeah. on what was happening then. It was. Faith No More was, I mean, we saw Faith, Faith No More live when we were out playing out, out there. And I, I just thought, there's a new wave. And it was. It, I got goosebumps the first time I heard Nirvana. Um, but the, at the same time, there were a lot of bands like, Guns N' Roses, when they saw Nirvana came along and they were dressed in like the Poodle Rock. Mm. And then, um, I, I can't remember which one of them said it. One of them, I think it was, I think it was, I don't, can't remember if it was Slash or whatever, just said like, okay, that's, we gone. Okay, right. because, and then just, I think everyone just labeled it a Seattle, but like, for example, everyone came from everywhere else, but it was because that's where there was this movement that was, Led by those two guys who opened Sub Pop or whatever. Oh, Steve Albini and um, yeah, and then and then yeah, I mean there was this this and the and the Pavit and whatever they are, but um, they they released the first Nirvana and then they um, then what happened is is that like Soundgarden was like derivative of punk and heavy bands like Purple and Deep Purple and Zeppelin, you know, yeah. and Zeppelin, and then they pulled it into this thing and. Um, it was like the first thing to notice is like the dress code was completely different from Poodle Rock. So like everyone was like, oh, okay, let me put on a, a checkered shirt and tear my jeans and bad tackies and stuff like that. But it almost seeged in a wave. And I, I was speaking just recently, we're very due for a new A one. new movement, yeah. Yeah. But to force it, uh, and, and you know, it, happens it, it, naturally. it just happens. Yeah. So we can sit now and plan something and say we've got a venue. Let's just put punk bands in. Let's start our own movement or whatever. It's not going to work because uh, it's forced. So out of the blue, it's going to happen. I, I, I can't see it at this stage. I haven't seen any. It's the same old uh, concerts, same bands, same lineups. 
And, uh, you know, like, no, I, I like Prime Circle. They're good friends of mine. They, they're creaming it. They're doing very well. Mm. They're playing at every single concert. Good for them. They're doing something right. And they're consistent. Um, but here's but the who thing, else Bonnie, have we got, you know? Here's the thing is that, that what was a new God is now the old God. Mm. So you've got, dare I say it, aging rock stars like the Foo Fighters and the Red Hot Chili Peppers who really should be calling it a day in mm. terms of being innovative. Uh, and yeah, Pr- Prime Circle are a great band, mm. but, but no one's come yeah, after, there's no th- after that. And maybe that's partially due to two things. One is radio, mm. um, and the other one is that radio is no longer the gatekeeper when it comes to hearing. I mean, when did you leave five? I mean... Uh, uh, when was it? 2015, I think. Oh, so you you, you were there a good... Um, yeah, I was there for 25 years. So, uh, yeah, th- th- then I went to uh, Tux FM. I remember There was that. nowhere else to go. And I ended up at Tux. Radio 2000 yeah, as well? Yeah, with you. Yeah, yeah with us. So so we were was, together. And I, only, I had a South African show on a Thursday night, four hours. It was amazing. I played everything. And we don't have that anymore. So... Um, I will yeah, only do it uh, if I can do my own thing. And until the day I die, and I've always said this, if you want to give me a rock show, and I said to him on a Sunday night, give me a good rock show where anything goes on Jackaratta. Absolutely. And we're going to have more people actually tuning in than tuning out. We've got nothing to lose. So, and they still look at me like I said. Just, well, especially at nighttime, because nighttime is regarded by advertisers and it's dead time. Yeah. You know? So you can pretty much get away with anything off, after mm. 7 o'clock yeah. in terms of music. Mm. So it makes sense to to – Try and get whatever audience you can yeah, get exactly. at that time. Rob, I mean, you called it a day with no friends of Harry in about, what, 98, somewhere around there? Yes. And and you kind of moved on. You became a, a, a renowned and highly respected advertising um, creative director in, a, in an ad agency. I didn't, you know, you were in that till recently. Um, did you... Did you continue writing or, or, or had you left that news behind?
No, I mean, yeah, I've I've been I've been doing ever since then. I've been in various bands, and I'm in one now, which yeah. But um, how it sort of happens is, is that around about the time we so-called broke broke up in '98 was because Dave was going over to to Scotland, and we couldn't keep up the same impetus or whatever. I, um, I started creating a studio in my house while pushing my advertising career, as I had been doing in the background of, of, of No Friends of Harry, and um, created a very nice band called Doris, um, and then uh, my latest... <laughs> <laughs> I like that name. <laughs> it's ridiculous, it's ridiculous. But each one of them almost had a different ethos or, or thing, whereas if you listen to it, you can obviously hear that it's me having mm. a, what they call a character voice, which is as opposed to a typical voice... Like, they, they say people like Lou Reed and uh, and Dylan, and they've got character voices. That's when people tell you you can't really sing. But um, <laughs> yeah, we. I mean, it's all it's all kept together. I think Doris, we try to get make it into something which was um, again, I guess, kicking against the mainstream. It's been the theme through all of this. Is that we try to make songs that were as melodic as possible, like Simon and Garfunkel. Mixed with pixies, but so the lyrics would be incredibly dark. But we try and make it as as, um, as light as possible, as, yeah. yeah, which was amazing. And then Momo um, was like um, played with um, um, Andrew and Rusty, are two really. Andrew's the, one of the best drummers in, in, in South Africa, and Rusty. They've both been around the um, around the block of playing different bands and stuff like that. And we wanted to make sort of grumpy old swamp rock type of thing, uncompromising. People expect when you get older to pick up an acoustic guitar and sit on a stool and play. We wanted to scare the shit out of people. <laughs> with the, Voodoo. Yeah, and then what was really good about COVID, no, that's the wrong way to say it, but um, I, I go and see, I see Dave, who's obviously the my my best mate, and and he's uh, he was the bassist in my friends, Harry. Um, we we see each other once or twice a year in some new place around the world to just experience something and whatever. With the advent of all of the things that COVID brought us, it allowed us to write in, in Edinburgh and Johannesburg. And um, anyway, the, it happened in 2018. I was overseeing Paddy Smith and Nick Cave, and we recorded something in Dave's studio because he's got a little studio, studio there, and... And then we started sending stuff backwards and forwards. And then with the advent of, of Zoom and Teams and Google and whatever, we found the best way of almost like he's in the same room as me. And so we spent literally just about every Friday since since 2019, um, I'll write something, then I'll send him the stuff, and then we'll get together on a Friday night over a bottle of whiskey and tequila. And we created this um, new band called A Million Ways to Die, also Super proud of it because um, Dave's producing it there. Then Matthew Fix, Fink is mastering it here. I'm writing it all and sending my parts to him, and he's putting in bits and pieces and and his stuff. And um, we've put out the first EP. We're just about to put out the second one. Yeah. And of course, there is uh, some No Friends of Harry news. There is. To this. It's, I'm super excited about this. I'm Why like, don't I know about I'm it? Looking, I'm looking. It's very recent, but like I'm looking at. Bar- <laughs> Can I tell you what it is? What you're getting back together again to do a few gigs, please. That we are doing that, but uh, but okay. No, we are doing that. 
we're doing a, um, a box set of all the free original vinyls with all the, the books with new outtakes in this. And let me tell you a little bit about this story. Because I was speaking to Benji um, a year ago, actually. Yeah. And um, what's, what's sort of happened with No Friends of Harry is that if you look on eBay and stuff like that, our, our, our vinyls sell like, like at, at prices that like I get jealous about because they're secondhand ones and, and, and people pay much, much more for them, up to a thousand rand for original like one came running, whereas you could have bought new for like 10 rand or 15 rand or whatever it was. And um, Benji was just saying to me, you, you know, you should consider doing a – a box set and I said yeah, yeah the biggest problem we have is we don't have all of the original tapes we've got some of them and we've got some of like recordings even of when we were in the studio with you and things like that and um, Benji managed to to source from um, from um, Gallo Gallo yeah, all the masters of, and, and I went and fetched it and it was this pile of tapes <laughs> like this and I, I just had this big grin on my face, and I took them to um, to Matthew Fink, so that we could get all of the original stuff, listen to what we had there, da- download it, and we're going to remaster it with all of us in No Friends Harry, exactly the same as the original ones that people can't get hold of, and they can buy it. Um, what we did find, which is really exciting, is like because in those days you could only put so many tracks on a vinyl or whatever. We found a whole bunch of, and, and of second takes and, as you do, um, songs that we haven't um, – that we, we, I'd forgotten that we'd recorded. Really good quality. So we're going to do another vinyl, which will have, which will have different versions of the songs on, on that, and some brand new stuff. We did a cover of – maybe I'll leave that for later. We did a really good cover of, 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 one, of one of our artists. We do very few covers, as you know. It's like White Rabbit, Painted Black, and one or two others. Um, and then, the, then it'll come with a booklet which sort of describes the whole time and period like this. And just speaking to Matthew is we want to do it in chapters on video as well. So if we take a decade uh, or, or a year, like at 1987, then we'll have our video of that mm. and, and, and the, the outtakes from that. And, and 88 was in from cold, 89 was into the valley, um, 91 was 15 seconds. So um, we're super excited about that because it's going to be done without compromise. Three vinyls, which we've never had it before, new tracks, um, big 12-page booklet the same size as that with all of the different stuff and pictures and that that we're gathering to do. Um, So, And then what we want to do is bring out um, Dave and do do sort of gigs around around, – we want to do a festival. We want to do big one in Joburg where we, where we get to play with people who were playing with at that time, like Diesel Halls and Plum or, or Nine or one of those guys um, with us to support us. And What about a flatbed truck? Amazing. <laughs> do, do it all over again. Well, what we are doing is one in Dahlstrom at the brewery because they've got a nice <laughs> thing. We're going to attract a little festival there. Talking about um, that time period and everything, I mean, it, Barney – is goth an alternative, in your opinion, uh, of its its time and place? And will it go the way of other genres like psychedelia and punk and others, locked in a kind of a time bubble? And the second part of that is, will we ever see a creative period like that again in, in, in music? Um, it is in a bubble. I think it's like pigeonholed 
if you say goth, you you already in your mind you know you know you see a person in black and makeup and and the music is dark and so you, you won't get away from that. But I think if we've, there are a couple of South African bands that that I've heard of, they got this. There's a bit of a gothic punk sound coming back. <clears throat> I can't remember the names. I heard it on Mix FM, but I just stood out and I forgot to call. Uh, the radio station to find out what it was because I didn't back announce the song and it makes me angry. So tell me what you're playing. It will, if, if, if we can um, look at a couple of South African bands now, and it's, it's, it, fashion is now, it plays a major role in rock and roll. So um, when you go out to a concert, do you see people still wearing black? You know, you need to, and I think you guys can start this movement, which is brilliant because now everybody's going to talk about this. So all the other bands are going to try and like psychos are going, Maybe we should come to South Africa too. So it's, I think I, I can sense there's something that's brewing but because you guys have started it again. And if you look at all over the world, all the bands touring now, they, all these guys from the 70s, 80s, mm. Selling a Kiss is still on tour, sold out Guns N' Roses. All these bands are, are touring and they're selling out stadiums. So there's, that movement's happening already. Now we need to, in South Africa, if there's a festival Get on that festival, even if you play at three in the mm. afternoon. Just go on there and blow everybody away, you know. So I think that we need to get into already organized festivals as well, or else you do your own thing. Yeah, I think I think what's happened here is that firstly, I think that goth has become less um, derived as a word. So I, I think Billie Eilish, when she started, she's goth. Anna Wolf, who's here. Oh, yeah, absolutely. There's, there's, I mean, it, the threads are all there, and, and people are applying it in the same way. It's dark music. It's, it talks about all of those things you described it as. Then here in South Africa, I think what we might be falling into the trap here, because I think the environment's perfect for a disenfranchised youth to bubble up again, and we just need to look at South Africa to, mm. to agree with that, okay? Mm. Um, I've got a feeling, uh, and this is not dissing any bands or anyone, but the festivals seem to have the same old bands on. Mm. Um, if you go to, I don't know, Smoking Kills, which is one of the very few clubs open and stuff like that, you'll find bands like Painted Flowers, Zoo Lake, um, which are sort of, they don't give a shit about that. Because they don't want to put out picnic blankets mm. and and sit and do that in in a festival environment. And yes, there's a, there's obviously a massive place for it. But if you're disenfranchised youth, you want to be in a smoky club with sweat dripping from the roof, playing to people who are getting drugs and trying the latest drugs, and um, and and that's got to bubble up. But what's happened in the past? Whether you're talking the seventies with bands like The Doors being played mainstream or Hendrix. And then punk uh, taking out is where the scene forces its way through and to a place that no one can, um, like, ignore them anymore. So, like it did in, 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 back in 86 or whatever it was for us up here. Earlier in Durban, um, what punk did in London, what, what happened CBGBs, what happened with Nirvana, it feels like it needs to bubble out of, the, of these dodgy nightclubs mm. and emerge into an environment that, like, People can't ignore anymore. And it just feels like it's been bubbling under. So I, I often end up at those clubs, the, the dirty, dingy clubs are my favorite ones, <laughs> and, 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 and watch these bands. And I'm just blown away by, like, so many of them. The talent's there, but it, they're always badly attended because it's so, it's so niche that, like, 
We had the same thing, I guess, in a, to, mm. to a large degree until mm. we became more successful. But they got Uber now, so we didn't have Uber in our day. Um, <laughs> we, and those cops, so we never bribed them anyway. They drank our black label, remember? That? Yeah, oh, yes. So oh, yes, put yes, you yes, over, um, can we have a sip? Now, before we close this, your five favorite bands, Bonnie. No friends of Harry. Right. They've always been. <laughs> no, definitely. They, no, I mean, look, look at my collection. Thank you, thank you. Rob, I brought these in. Uh, before we go, uh, what is that? Explain to everybody what that is. This looks like an original vinyl, and what's. Oh my God. This is the original vinyl for No Friends of Harry competition rules for Radio 5. And uh, this is a pilot disc. It's a. It's so, as a give, give, Yeah, give it. Benji will explain. That is before. Uh, that goes into. Um, oh, that's Shellac. Yes. That's a shellac. Oh, that's shellac acetate. It's wow. A, it's insane. That's incredible. That must be one day. of the first ones that's – one of our first tracks that's yeah. ever been done for that, for, for Airplane. 1987. Yeah. yeah. There you go. So, uh, you know, once again, people collect things. I mean, if, if you look at people our age, they've got – vinyl is coming back like you cannot believe it. Massive, massive. Benji knows. It's like – uh, people drop vinyls off at my studio every day. Boxes. I mean, from Gay Corsten to I don't care. It's a, it's it's a, it's in mint condition. A Gay Corsten will sell. So, sure. um, and but as you say, the, these albums are selling. Uh, and 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 well done with uh, Benji, both of you for bringing this back. I'm very excited. Well, we look and, forward to that that box set. That's, okay, Your five so bands: Nirvana, um, Pixies, mm. uh, Led Zeppelin, mm-hmm. Pink Floyd. And then wow. one more, Psycho Reptiles. Okay. Rob? I, I, I have no idea, but I'll go. I'll, I'll just say, let, let me figure out the single songs of the people that I like the most. So I would say Joy Division, Patti Smith. Let me think of something current. I like Faith No More, shit load. Uh, Nick Cave is by far one of my, my favorites. And Bowie. Cool. And yours, Benji? Whoa. Whoa, low blow. It's, hot, it's a very oh. difficult thing it to is. do. It's very hard to choose. If I had to choose five, <laughs> I would say Hendrix because it was my light switch moment. Without doubt, the Stooges mm. are to me the greatest garage band of all time. Agreed. Fun House deserves to yeah. be preserved in the Smithsonian Institute. Um, Amazing. Wow. Falling Mirror. Mm. Yeah. Yep, I love yep. dark, also very, very dark very, stuff. Yeah. Um, Pink Floyd, the first album, Piper at the Gates of Dawn. Yeah. Because it's such a seminal record for me. And Francois Hardy sings in English. Mm. I love that. Three, yeah. With All Over the World on it. I got I it yesterday that. and I played it. <laughs> it's crazy because I got that because I used to, my, my elder sister and, and brother, I used to like have, that's how I got entered into music, actually. Right. And that was one of the one of the albums. Rob McLennan and Barney Simon, thank you so much for giving me your time on From the Hip. It's been an absolute gas talking to you. Just we could go on for hours. Yeah, thanks. It, it was a whole lot of fun bridging up these uh, memories, Barney. Thank you, Benji. Thank you, Rob. And uh, thank you. Yeah, respect. And uh, before you go, can you sign these for me? It took me 25, nearly 30 years, and you still haven't signed my vinyl. So <laughs> have, you, have you got a bit of time? Yeah. Okay. Cool. Cool. Thank you. You've been listening to another production from Solid Gold Podcasts.